Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. My guest this week is Ken Meyer Jr., who drew a slew of comics in the 1980s and 1990s, but is probably best known as an artist for his work on Magic the Gathering. That's not what we talk about, by and large, though, in the next hour and 20 minutes. Uh, Ken and I explore the fascinating world of fanzines, especially fanzines for the 1970s and 1980s. Ken and I are both kind of comic historians when it comes to zines. Ken has a column on um, Comic Attack called Ink Stained, in which he presents a full copy of a fanzine from that era, as well as an interesting little capsule history of the zine. It includes artwork um, from such well-known creators as Mike Zeck, George Perez, Dave Cockerman, many, 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 many others. Um, it's a fascinating site and really well worth checking out. As you can hear, both Ken and I have a deep, deep passion for this material, and it's just a really uh, fun topic for us. Hope you enjoy it as well. It starts right after this ad. Welcome, Ken Meyer Jr. to uh, Classic Comics Cavalcade. Thanks for having me. You've been writing yeah, a column for Comic Attack for about 10 years now, where you cover classic old fanzines, especially zines from what I kind of think of as like a lost era in fanzines, which is the 1970s, 1980s. Um, there's a lot of attention to the work in the late 60s and early 70s, but not so much in the in the time period that you and I were both getting involved in fandom. Yeah, it, it's weird because to me, well, maybe it's this subjective period, but to me, that is like the best era of fanzine um, when I came in, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, because I didn't really know any other era. I mean, uh, I think you had to be living when something's happening to truly experience it the way you should. So those earlier zines, um, like in the maybe late 60s, um, I didn't really have any knowledge of them because I didn't start until 1971. So my the stuff that I read was from that point on until probably like the almost, well, the early 80s when there were still some fanzines being made. And there's some great fanzines being made in the early 1980s um, that people just don't know about. Yeah, and I might have forgotten them all, but I know that I know the dates. I know that I still <laughs> did it then. I think, uh, I think, I think after might have uh, still been going on and, and had their biggest issues at that time, and then there were some that might might have been thought of as more professional setups like uh, Megaton, which I think definitely started the fantasy, and, and, and since it was uh, centered around uh, actual stories rather than a whole bunch of different things, mm-hmm. uh, it was more like, more like an early black and white comic boom kind of thing. But just like a lot of fanzines, um, the guy... Uh, I'll remember his name and I'm not trying to remember it, but, oh, Gary Carlson, uh, who ran Megaton, for example, it's the same sort of thing. He used a lot of people, at least several people, when they were still really young and new, who then went on to do a lot in comics, like Angel Medina and, and Rob Liefeld, for example. Um, and it, oh, Gary, Gary Larson, too. Some of those guys are doing stuff in Megaton. 
going in the early 80s um, before they really became the professionals that they became known as. Yeah, and um, you, you, the most recent post you did was of No Sex, um, David Heath Jr. zine, and David seemed to have this amazing talent for finding people who were uh, just amazing artists, um, Jaime Hernandez, Daniel Close, Dan Day, and people who people uh, artists who people don't know quite as well, you know, Willie Peppers, Mark Heike. Um, well, and either even like Raphael Kainan. Yeah. Right. He did stuff early on, uh, and like you say, Mark Tyke did um, a fair amount. Uh, I'm trying to think uh, who else, uh, but those are the names that um, come to mind to me for the ones that went on. I mean, mainly the Hernandez brothers, because I'm trying to think of of anyone else who did their very early work with with David and then went on to do a lot more and. I mean, Mark did, Mikey did some, and, and Raphael did a fair amount, uh, but he didn't do as, as much stuff for David as, as uh, his stable, like Jerry Collins, or Jerry, yeah, Jerry Collins and um, some of the other guys like that. Yeah, I think I'm just a little bit older than you. I was born in 66, and um, talking, nope. sorry? Nope. No? Okay. Okay, so we were we were involved in this stuff around the same time. Were you trading like cassette letters with some of the fanzine editors and these long letters when you were in high school and stuff? Well, letters, not cassette letters. Um, although I did have a lot of cassettes later on, and I remember like recording over a bunch of my dad's cassettes like, for various things. Um, um, but he wasn't really using them that much then, so he didn't mind. But I don't think I did letters. I I can see someone like David maybe doing it because he was more into a lot of the uh, electronics and all the gear and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't really know anything about that. I mean, I had, you know, like a little tape deck that I might record something from the radio or something. But, uh, but I wrote a lot, and I was writing a lot um, to the professional comics, too, and... I think I had like a, maybe a hundred or so letters published in various comics, but uh, but I think that was that was part of the reason why fanzines were, um, you know, in addition to all the nostalgia attached to it, a reason why they sort of meant more to you because you had to wait for them, you know, you had to wait for them to come in the mail, um, and you had to like pay for them with your allowance or money you got from turning in bottles or whatever. Because um, 50 cents might have been a lot, you know, to you when you were uh, 13. Or so. Yeah, I had a newspaper route, and all my money went to buying fanzines and stuff. Um, I actually did trade cassette letters with um, with David Heath and also with um, with Matt Buker, who did Ultrazine. And it was this... Oh, yeah, ca- it's kind of an odd hybrid, right? It was so expensive at that point to call people. So you'd have these cassette letters where you'd mix in music and talk. And um, it was just this weird experience. Like a lot of my allowance actually went to buying like packs of cassettes too. <laughs> I wish I would have done that. That would have been cool. But I really can't remember. 
I know I must have done something like that with somebody, but I just can't remember any specific uh, instances. And I don't remember doing it with um, any fancy people. It was uh, mainly a lot of letters. I might have talked to them on the phone once or twice back then. Um, I know I, I think I talked to David a couple of times, and I might have talked to Matt too, because uh, I did a lot of stuff with him as well. Um, yeah. For Ultra and, and some of the other stuff that he had. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm almost more interested in the artists who, or creators who people didn't know who were active during that era. You know, uh, you know, Mitchell Connell had had a nice career, but he's kind of more uh, more in the uh, not outside comics or people like Rick McCollum. And Earl Geyer, who were like incredibly talented creators, and yourself too, were maybe not as well known. Um, I think a lot of that stuff is the gems you find in these old zines. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to, I tend to have more interest and pay more attention, I guess, to the people who went on to do a lot, just from the historical aspect of it. You know, seeing some of their early work, but I had a lot of interactions with people like Rick. I didn't really have any interactions with Earl, but I really, really liked his stuff a lot. He was, for me, he was probably the best storyteller, um, you know, layouts and everything of any of the guys doing comics back then. I, I really thought all it would take for him to do really well is to have a really good anchor or something, because he did some really cool layouts. You know, maybe it's just because I compare him to the other fan artists, but. He did. I really liked, liked his stuff, and also I got Bald Ego and his um, other stuff that he that he would be in here and there, and, and Rick McCollum too. I did a lot of like I inked some of his stuff and um, did some work with with him in the little like little tiny zines that he would do. Right. Um, yeah. His characters, um, and I sent him. Uh, a stapled together a copy of a story that I did of this character that I that I created called Feral, who was basically just my version of like this combination of Wolverine and the Creeper, I guess that's way to describe it. Um, and uh, and I sent this copy to him just to get note what he thought of the layouts and the story and how things progressed. And I think I still have that copy somewhere, you know, with like little pencil notes where he would say, you know, what the hell is going on here and stuff like that. I I think Geyer and McCollum are like two of the artists who could have been bigger um, if they just come around at a different time. Like McCollum's work was like great underground comics work. Um, yeah. Kind of mind blowing. Yeah, he was definitely into that sort of psychedelic, uh, uh, crazy, sort of over the top characters and stories and stuff and he was really good at it and incredibly prolific and really imaginative he's like one of the more if not one of the most imaginative storytellers and writers um that i know of in, in fanzines anywhere um and yeah he really he really he, he's someone who had the whole package maybe not inking because he wasn't really an inker at all but just someone who could come up with the, all these characters and um, stories, and, and uh, he's another guy who probably really benefited from 
someone like Bill Anderson inking him, you know, because he can really make it look really clean, but still have all that crazy, interesting stuff that, that Rick could do. Yeah, like uh, one of the pieces, one of the zines you covered was the Ultra Zine special. That's got that amazing McCollum backup story. And it's so dense and complicated. There's so much going on there. And yet uh, the storytelling is just right on target, too. Um, yeah, his storytelling was pretty clear from what I remember. Um, a lot of guys with hairy chests. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, like all of us at the time, right, he was full of anger and frustration. Wolverine was a big character for him. So, you know, Wolverine had a hairy chest and his guys had hairy chests. But um, there's just this primal energy to his work. Do you know much about him? Um, well, yeah, I've talked to him a fair lot. He's on Facebook, actually. He's pretty active on Facebook. Okay. Um, and, uh, I mean, for a long time... I didn't have any contact information for him um, until he really showed up on, on Facebook. And, you know, that might have been like eight or nine, ten years ago even, uh, where he wasn't really very active, but now he's more active. Um, but when I did, I did a, an installment of Ink Stains, all, you know, devoted just to him. But at that point, I'd still not been able to reestablish contact with him and it came after the fact so i've been able to use various quotes and stuff from him in anything he was involved in you know now um he uh he's working on he's working on a a, a big project of his now i, I don't know uh, when it's going to be done or or uh, anything like that but he he still is 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 drawing a fair amount i should reach out to him then a lot of what I want to do oh, with yeah. this pod is to like talk about people who aren't as well recognized in fandom. Yeah, you got to do an installment with him because I would love to hear him talk at length. I, um, I think I might have talked to him on the phone once or twice, but I can't remember any specifics. Um, it's mainly been just uh, messages and stuff on Facebook lately, um, and I had this uh, book of. Uh, portraits that I've done of other artists, the sketchbook, but I'll add stuff to now and then. I just did one time. But I have Rick in there, more of a caricature than a, than a totally realistic painting, but um, uh, yeah, you really, that would be real. I'd love to listen to that, so reach out to him and tell him I sent you or whatever. So. Yeah, I will for sure, yeah. I doubt he'll remember me from back in the day since I didn't do that much. I was always a little envious of all you guys with your talent and the work you put into it. Yeah, just tell, I'll, I'll tell him too, you know, that um, because he's someone, I mean, I, I've had enough of a voice, really, because I've had this column and I've done some interviews with various people in a few magazines and online because of, probably mainly because of Magic the Gathering um, or mm-hmm. anything else. But I don't think there's anything out there that I know of where he's talked at length about stuff. So um, that would be a really interesting conversation, sure. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll do that then. I'll reach out to him. Yeah, like we were talking about, it was just nice to read about Dennis Fujitaki, too, who um, you know was a great fan artist. And looking at those old Rocket Blast and other zines, like he was incredibly talented. And um, like I loved um, 
Dalgoda and uh, Reteeth, but then he seemed to kind of drop off the face of the earth. Yeah, he's another guy that I uh, that it feels to me didn't get the break he deserved. Um, I mean, Dalgoda did okay. Um, I didn't read the other one because I only I don't think I was really aware of it, and I only have vague memories of reading Dalgoda. Um, but the stuff that, that I really liked of his back then was when he would do you know sword and sorcery kind of stuff because he just seemed like especially in the latter part of his fanzine career where he had sort of merged Jeff Jones with Steve Ditko. Yeah. His style was a little bit more fluid by that point. And he did, like I'm looking across the room on my wall and I have this original artwork for the buyer's guide number eight, which is the very first thing I ever saw having to do with fandom at all. And, um, and that sort of the stuff that I really remember really, really liking it. And I mean, he was, he was pretty much all over the place back then. Um, and he's another guy, well, like you know, that I talked to recently um, for that interview, um, although that was, um, I think, just sending him some questions and then having him reply back right. through email. Um, but he... I think he, for whatever reason, it just didn't work out. He wasn't maybe getting enough work. And so I think he started uh, phasing out of that and trying to just get whatever, maybe advertising artwork or various things he could get there in Hawaii, um, which he, he still does to some degree. But then he has this uh, story um, that I think he has maybe like four or five relatively com- complete comic books of the this story these characters um, and it's a lot of fun to read and it's um, his, his style is is uh, simplified uh, and mm-hmm. he's always you know he's really good with the layouts and it's, it's a, a fun story to read so I, it'd be great if he actually finished it and found someone who could get it some visibility yeah, I'd love to have that in print. It was fun to read online. Yeah. Still got his, yeah. his style to it, you know, that, that kind of smirking at the reader kind of smile or style. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, he, I think he's gone, refined it so it's even, well, it's, it's just as much him, but it's uh, sort of back to his love of Ditko. Um, and, uh, it has that kind of loosey-goosey kind of um, uh, cartoony um, style to it that that just comes natural to him, I guess, now. Yeah, there's a lot of artists from that time who I just look back at their work and I just enjoy. Um, Eugene Day is all over your, your list of creators, too. And I think he's such a fascinating person because he had that nice abbreviated time as a professional, but he worked so hard as a fan to make a living doing fan art, which is something you can't even imagine doing today. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and there were a few people like that. I mean, the people that come to mind the most might be Gene Day to some degree, but even more, uh, at least in the era that, that I'm most familiar with, would be, I mean, Fujitaki to some degree and Gary Cato to a lesser degree, but people like uh, Mike Zeck 
and mm-hmm. earlier than him, even Dave Cockrum. I mean, because mm-hmm. Cockrum was all over the place before he became a professional. Um, I mean, I, he seems almost to me, off the top of my head, to possibly be the most published fan artist um, that I can think of, because I mean, he was just everywhere. God, you're right. Cockrum's style kind of emerged, kind of fully formed too. Is it? I guess he was in the Navy was drawing while he was in the Navy, and then when he was discharged, he finally was able to live his dream of working in comics. I, I think so. I mean, I don't know the story really. I don't know his history really, really well, but I just know that uh, he was doing fanzine work probably um, as early as, like, 60, maybe 7 or 8. Mm-hmm. Um, and then through, I, I think he... He must have become a professional technically around 1970, maybe three or four or something. I can't remember when uh, his first maybe Marvel was would have been, but I think I know it's like the mid 70s, right? I mean that's when. Yeah, he did. He, I'm not sure if he started. No, he started with the DC um, Tarzan books. He was working oh. as Murphy Anderson's assistant, and Anderson oh. drew John Carter of Mars in the back of Tarzan, if I remember right. And okay. he was basically ghosting um, Anderson at the time, and then eventually they just flip-flopped the credits and had him be the guy who was actually drawing the series. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm at my computer, so I'm sure I can just go in to Wikipedia and <laughs> find out when Cockrum's first uh, professional work was. But I know that he was... Uh, and I think he might even continue for a little while to do fanzine work after yeah. that because it seems like he was doing it into the mid-70s. Yeah, he was because he never forgot his roots. Uh, yeah, he was an interesting guy. I actually worked with um, Cliff Meth guy about 15, oh, yeah. 18 years ago. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, ironic, too, since he's Jewish. You know, Meth has that great clear meaning in, in Judaism also. Um, uh, to to get Cockrum um, some rights to the Marvel characters and give him a decent pension when he was um, basically fighting off diabetes problems. Right, right. Um, and so uh, Cliff talked all the time about Dave and what a great guy he was, but also just how prolific he was and how kind of innocent Dave was about rights and copyrights and the need right. to protect yourself. Yeah, because I think he just wanted to draw you know and and make up characters he, maybe he, he would just didn't have the mindset to worry about that sort of thing right and i think that's a lot of us felt that way at the time too um it's like we're, we'll just take any property and draw what we want to based on that property and just have fun with it not even think about it being any sort of copyright thing yeah hold on a second yeah no problem um, yeah, okay, good. Um, yeah, I, I mean, well, obviously most of us being fans, you know, probably do anything to get into professional comics and, you know, probably would have worked on anything and not worried about getting paid that well or retaining any rights to anything as long as we could actually be working in the comic business. Yeah, and, and then... You went through the school of hard knocks a little bit, right? You uh, you had some challenges trying to make a living in the comics for a while. Well, I did some. Um, I don't know if it's really hard knocks so okay. much, 
because by that time, um, well, I, I did a bunch of fanzine work, and um, then I think um, some of the, uh, let's see, let me think. I did some work for, for Caliber and uh, mainly smaller publishers. I mean, I did a few things for Marvel, just a few painted jobs here and there. Um, I mean, I really wanted to, if I would have had my way, I would have gotten some work in, in Vertigo because that's the stuff that I was really into reading. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of my favorite artists, that's what they were, that's what they're working in. And in fact, uh, you know, I had a few brushes with some of those people, like, for example, Mike Dringenberg was an inker um, on one of these hamster comics that I did. And at that time, I was, uh, I had a day job in a mall working in a, a print, a store that sold prints and did framing and stuff. And Mike would come in uh, and show me some of this stuff uh, before he became a pro. And then even like at San Diego, I remember when, um, uh, oh shit, I'm forgetting his, his name, the guy who worked, uh, Sam, Sam Keith, who, uh, oh, yeah. you know, worked on Sandman at the very beginning. I remember Sam showing me some of the pages where Mike was inking him and asking if he thought it worked because their styles separately were so different. Um, but, uh, so Mike then worked at, for Don Chin on, on these hamster comics and did a, I think he did a book for a very short time for Don Cole Enchanter. And, you know, I think he probably got his Vertigo thing pretty quick after that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, like I mentioned Megaton, you know, I, I was doing work for, for Megaton while Angel Medina and Rob Liefeld and Eric Larson and some other guys are there and they went on to do it. I, have, I just feel like I've been in so many things with people who have gone on to done do so much. <laughs> like at Caliber, you know, I was there at the same time that uh, Bendis was doing stuff and I would do some stuff for him now and then and David Mack was doing stuff at Caliber. Uh, Vince Locke was doing stuff there. I kept, I've been bugging um, the guys at Tomorrow to try and do a, a caliber feature because they would feature these publishers for a while. But he, he told me that they don't really do that sort of thing anymore. They may be focusing on you know, single creators. So Yeah, John Cook, yeah. That's John's John's whole thing. Yeah, I really love that. And he's like one of the best uh, bunch of magazines about comics around or ever so um, that's who I'm going to be writing this article for on fanzines that I mentioned to you so uh, I'd, I'd like to see it as a book honestly so I, you know I've, I've wrote the American Comic Book Chronicles the 1970s and 1990s for them and they are great to work for John is uh, John Cook or rather John Morrow is um, as yeah. honest and easy to work with as anyone I've ever worked with anywhere. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've talked to him off and on, uh, you know, through the mail, I mean, through uh, uh, electronic means and then at, at San Diego. 
because um, I mean I definitely buy most of the stuff that they do. Um, but anyway, to backtrack, yeah, I guess to what? Well, back. Let's talk about me. Um, uh, so yeah so I did the the caliber stuff and I had a lot of fun doing that Um, and I worked oh there's another guy I worked with uh, Mike Mike, uh, I worked with um, Mike Carey who has written a lot of stuff for various publishers now I think mainly DC um and he and I were doing this comic called Aquarius, which was sort of like uh, um, Alan Moore's, uh, was it ABC? Is that what it was called? Yeah. Where he did like, uh, what the heck was that comic that he did with Xander Cannon and... Uh, oh, Top Ten? Yeah, yeah. The, the police procedural like with superheroes. Well, heroes everywhere kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and it was a, a painted, a painted thing, and I think I got like forty odd pages done. And then the comic that it was in, this British comic called Toxic, just folded. So then it just sort of, you know, stopped. And then Mike eventually went on to superstardom, <laughs> like he is now, doing all the stuff that he's doing. So I, I ended up in the same place, working with some of the same people, and working with some of these people who ended up, uh, for whatever reason, you know, going on to do what they do. And I think uh, basically my chronology, I guess, is from high school into college. And then in college, I was an art major, of course, and um, did various little projects for a school newspaper and all stuff like that. And then when I was done with that I never never did graduate back then but I just basically entered the field of commercial art and so I had day jobs from about 19 let's see um 77 or so I mean I had a few jobs in art stores and stuff before that but eventually I started working these ad agencies and I just work in one then another then another and for a while I I had a job as a, um, a defense contractor, I guess, mm. artist in various companies that would do training material for the military and stuff like that. And I did that for a period of about um, eight or nine years. You're always and, getting to draw uh, during that time? Draw or paint or yeah, basically, yeah, blueprints or whatever? Well, I had these various day jobs doing artwork of all kind of different things and then the freelance work would be um stuff like comics mainly mm-hmm. and uh and then eventually the gaming stuff like magic and white wolf games and stuff like that um one of those defense contractor jobs we would i lived in vegas at the time and we'd get on a plane i'd get on a plane like a 737 or whatever on monday morning and fly out to the remote spot in the Nevada desert near this town called Tonopah and we live in these big trailers for four days a week or 10 hour days and come back home to wherever we lived um, on Thursday night and uh, it was for the stealth fire before it was declassified so mm. 
Um, I, I was doing like cartoons and, and various types of artwork for flights, helping pilots learn how to fly this or use this part of the plane or whatever. Um, which is basically what I was doing before for other types of aircraft. Um, but that was kind of interesting being out there in the, the middle of nowhere. I mean, because it was out in the middle of nowhere, they had, it was a really nice base. They had a lot of intramural sports and they had really good food. And um, I think they had a theater, I can't remember for sure. But uh, um, after, after that, I, uh, I don't remember. I think it, after that, I had another various types of art-related jobs working for companies like Alpha Learning. They were doing various online learning materials for uh, K to 12, um, and that's where I met my now ex-wife. And after that, we moved around a couple of times for jobs that she got. And at that time, I was mainly doing freelance work for all kinds of places, mm -hmm. um, including the, the gaming stuff. Uh, and then I went back to school in Georgia to finish my degree um, because I thought I might might teach at some point and might need it to teach. And so I've just been doing freelance only for probably the last 15 years or so. So keep you occupied, play the do in, his, in the freelance field these days. Uh, yeah, it it does it does pretty good. I mean, part of what I'm doing also is uh, Magic the Game. They have tournaments all over the world all right. the time, and uh, the the company that that manages there's one company now that manages those tournaments, and so they bring artists in. <clears throat> Uh, like you were at a comic convention, except you're given the table space, and they're there just to make it more interesting for the players. You know, we sign cards, we do commissions, we sell all these various peripheral things related to the game. Um, I've been doing, like, on average of maybe one a month of those kind of things. So as far as my, how I make my living, that became a major part and then a lot of other types of commission work relating to, to magic um, but then I also have continued to do pretty constant work for White Wolf Games and for a couple companies that took over some of their properties um, so that, all that stuff in addition to just the you know portraits for people and um, odd commissions here and there and then just selling my stuff in general that's cool. There's enough enough work out there for you to keep busy, make a few bucks. Um, of course, Magic, uh, compared to comics fandom, Magic fandom is like massively larger and massively more committed, I think. Yeah, and they have, at least for me, uh, nostalgia plays a big part, just like, just like it does in fanzines, because the cards that I did for the game... I haven't really done any cards for them, new ones, for probably 10 years. Uh, but the cards that I did do, people that are, say, for example, they're, they're playing the game now, they're in their 40s maybe, or even older, when they were 
really into this game. Uh, I think the, the anniversary of the work that I did is actually more like 25 years ago. I think it was like 1993, four or five. And uh, so those guys, they, those people, you know, they played, they were playing when they were in grade school or maybe high school. And now they're adults with an expendable income to some degree. So the people that know my work the best um, have a little bit more money to spend, I guess, than a youngster who might be getting into the into the game now. So that works to my favor to some degree. Yeah, well, that that's my whole thing with comic art now, too, is like, I have the money to spend. This stuff means a lot to me, maybe more than it means to other people because I've lived with it for so long. So I want it, you know. You know, I'm looking over right now to my right and I have this Kurt Swan page on my wall. It just means a lot to me. But I think if you're, yeah. like, you know, even just a, 10 years younger, it's not going to mean the same amount. Yeah, and like like I mentioned, that, that Fujitaki cover, I mean, the way I got into fandom in the first place was I, there was a librarian that at my high school, I think I must have been in something like the 10th grade, maybe, maybe the 9th grade. And, you know, I was into comics, and at some point she pointed out this newspaper to me, a buyer's guide in the library, and it was like a whole new thing to me. It was like this amazing world that opened up because of the buyer's guide and because the ads in there for all those fanzines. And, Al, and Alan Light, when he... He gave me a free subscription because I think at that point subscriptions were still free right. or they were free for a while. Um, he sent me like a copy of The Collector and a copy of one of his other, his other fanzines. Um, um, even though I profiled it in the column. Of, uh, I'll remember oh, yeah. I know which one you mean. I... I can't think of the name. It's like two or three issues, two or three issues of it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so he sent me uh, copies of these things for free, uh, which was really nice of him. And so that really got me into the whole idea of it. And then eventually, I mean, I mean, started. I started mainly as a, a reader because it was all so new and cool and everything. And then I tried as hard as I could to get in as, as many of these fanzines as I could um, and uh, there, was, there was a time when uh, Brent Anderson was still a fan right before he became professional he had this fanzine called Venture that he did with Frank Caraco and Gary Winnick it's a beautiful um, fanzine it's really yeah, nicely really put together good. and some amazing artwork in that one yeah yeah and, and that was before Brent was a pro, and so he was. We were corresponding an awful lot back and forth. And he, I, I have a pretty good memory of his letterhead. It was a very detailed uh, drawing that went around the top and around the side, and the bottom. Um, he actually inked the first thing that I ever got published anywhere, which was a a Bruce Lee drawing, and it was in a a program book for this. Uh, San Francisco comic convention called Baycon that I just did two or three years and then and then disappeared. But that was a huge deal for me. I could remember his exact words um, in a letter. I think were something like, "Don't go ape shit, but I think I can get this published if I ink it." 
because he was he was sort of on the committee, the design committee or whatever of that program book, um, and so he he got that in there for me. That was like 1975. So you started young. Yeah, and well, like I say, that's the very first thing. I was really into Mercedes. I did a fair amount of drawings and stuff uh, of him. Um, and after that, uh, I think I think I, I started getting fans and stuff there pretty much around that time. I mean, if it's 1975, that means I already do fancy this. I can't remember if I did anything that got in anything before, but I know I can see my Roger Dean ripoff signature that I used in 1977 um, for various illustrations that were in, like, No Sex and a couple other um, fan themes here and there. It's a great story. Um, yeah, I started from the, the Buyer's Guide back at back in the day and they had the ads in all the marvel comics at the time so i just i ordered yeah i think i i think i had to pay like 75 cents or something because i remember distinctly maybe it wasn't for that but it was for other zines where i would tape quarters to a piece of paper and send them in the mail i did that too yeah i, did that too. <laughs> I was like now that i think about like wouldn't you hate to be the guy on the other side with all these sticky quarters and dimes <laughs> they probably all arrived postage due too because it was too heavy and like, what do you think about how much postage costs when you're like 10 or 11? Right. And then it's like a pain in the butt to keep track of all these people and their subscriptions and stuff. Um, but I, I ordered um, the buyer's guide and then there were so many fanzines advertised and it really felt like my head exploded just discovering this whole other world that was out there. Like there's other people who are into comics like me. This, this is incredible. Yeah. And then I... Yeah, and then I was able to make some local friends, too, who were um, fanzine collectors. So, like, one of the first ones that made a big impression on me was Omniverse. Yeah, I which is the, that name, yeah. Which is the one Mark Grunewald put out when he was still a fan. I forget who drew the cover. It was some, some, someone who became a professional, maybe Jerry Ordway. Um, it was all uh-huh. about um, the Omniversal Theory of Comics. Which is like fairly mind blowing when you're, you know, eleven or twelve years old to to read someone's kind of philosophical theory about how all comics can coexist in parallel worlds. Um, and like I was just like so enraptured by that whole, by that, and then other zines I picked up, and like I mentioned, I fell in with uh, Ultra Zine and No Sex especially, and just became this kind of second family or just a this great group of friends who were actually into the same stuff i was into and they were also talented yeah and i think a lot of us unless we were in bigger cities you know we were lucky to know one or two people who read comics at all much less than anything about fandom so it was a, a huge deal finding that all those people um, that were into the same sort of thing or related things that then you got into because they were into it. Um, I mean, it was a real uh, um, like family tree splintering kind of thing because you, you'd get like no sex, for example, and then you'd see uh, a witch kit or however you pronounced it mm-hmm. advertised. And then, you know, you might see RBCC and then, of course, 
see a ton of fanzines advertised in there or or fantastic fanzine which was one of my huge favorites back then so um just a lot of uh what's the word a lot of um, i guess inbreeding maybe to some degree because all these various people were in all these fanzines um at the same time well, I think there's also a great history to be written about those fanzines. Like, RBCC span, like, basically the entire history of comics fandom and went through all several different phases with several different groups of people working on them. And I think a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff is as interesting as the stuff that was out there in front. Oh, yeah. And, and also, because it's not the kind of... It's not the story you're going to hear very often because it was... You know, no one was interested in the backstory, really, uh, of, of all this stuff. No one even knew to be interested in how these things were formed or who was putting them out, um, at least on, a, on a, a large scale or any kind of media interest or anything. It was just some stuff that was going off on, on in someone's basement. Yeah, and then great artwork, too, by, like, Fujitaki, John Atkins Richardson, I think, was one of the, John Fantuccio. Oh, yeah. It was like one of the great lost talents to me. Yeah, I uh, uh, he was a, another big favorite of mine. And then at some point, long after that, one of these jobs my wife got uh, was in um, Virginia, in Fairfax, Virginia. She worked for, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but I think he worked for the government for a while. And then he decided to try and do his own his own company doing these educational software things and I was there in Virginia and I went into the library and I saw something hanging on the wall and I recognized that signature immediately mm -hmm. and I thought what the hell is this doing here and so I found out that he lived there um, and so this would have been about let's see like 20 years ago, I think. Um, so he was still alive and, and living there, and I made plans a couple of times to drive over, and it only would have been like a 20-minute drive, to see him, and then I never got around to it. Uh, and, and then we moved from Virginia uh, down to Georgia, so I'd lost my chance to go see him when he was still around. I, I communicated with him and his wife, after that, uh, on the phone, I think through the mail a couple of times, but I just didn't take the opportunity that I needed to when I lived there. Yeah, I feel bad about passing up a lot of those opportunities myself. Um, uh, I mean, I, I lived in Reno when I was in high school, and I lived in Seattle for 30 years, so I guess I'm a little more geographically limited than some people, but uh, still, the chance to, to get together with some of these friends would have been pretty special I've, I've seen some of them subsequently over the last few years uh, matt beaker who published ultra zine we got together at san diego con a couple years ago and that was really fun um car d'angelo who was a big uh uh writer for yeah, yeah. Uh, um he actually owns some comic shops in um the san fernando valley so oh. for a number of years we had an annual tradition of getting together for dinner at san diego with some other friends and it's actually been like this really nice adult friendship where comics almost never a part of the conversation 
but you have this nice in with people. And I think that's the greatest joy of being into this stuff when you're young is like you have a connection to people um, who are like your friends, even though um, you may not have ever met. And I guess in that way, it's like the Internet is now. Yeah. And I wish I would have known because I've been going to San Diego for like 25 years and I've only missed I've only missed a year here and there. Uh, so I was probably there in my table in Artist Alley, but I just didn't know that uh, everyone was getting together there. Yeah, I'll, I'll take some of the blame. I probably should have tried to see who else was there and reach out. Well, I remember seeing a few articles here and there or a few uh, um, just posts here and there about... Uh, some group that would get together at San Diego and um, and I think another convention maybe it was New York or something but uh, yeah I, I wish that I would have gotten gotten in, in some of those groups and I don't know actually I don't know if I'm going to go back to the convention um, as, as a vendor because I just don't do well enough even though I don't have really any overhead I have a friend I can stay with but the artist alley table space is so small, it's like a four foot um, part of a table. So it doesn't give you a lot of space to, to put stuff on. And of course, the audience, though it's huge, is so varied. People are there for so many different reasons, and so many people are there just for the most uh, basic, you know, non-comic fan reason, like they want a print of Dr. Doom, they don't care who, they don't have any interest or care who did the actual artwork, they just want a print of Dr. Doom. Maybe they want to have it for themselves, they want to give it to a, a grandkid or something, uh, but um, the, it's just, this has become not worth all the trouble of going down there and setting everything up and um, doing all that. Uh, yeah, I didn't go this last year because I went to a, a magic-related thing instead, and I don't know if I'm going to go this coming year, possibly for the same reason. I think I went from 2010 to 16, I think, and I haven't been back since. Um, it's weird because there was amazing access to creators there, and like I had more long conversations with folks. I think I just must have never seen your table. Um, well, it's easy to miss. There's just so much crap there. Because like you I, you could walk through Adam's alley. You could you could walk right by someone you know well because there's so much eye candy and you're looking around, you know, up and down all over the place. It's easy to miss people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just not worth it um, as much anymore. Uh, so I should focus back on on the zines and stuff. <laughs> So we talked about a few of your favorites. Um, who's someone who we kind of, who people may have may not think about who you think is really, really did great work in that time frame? Hmm. You know what I'm going to do while I'm talking to you? Uh, I'm going to go on my desktop and really quickly uh, just go to my website has the link, has all the links for Inkstain. Okay. Because with my crappy memory, I know I'm going to miss somebody or not think of someone uh, 
who I consider. I mean, to some degree, I focus on in individual artists, but to maybe an even larger degree, I tend to focus on particular fanzines that were really important. Right. Uh, no well, Sex is one, but then there's stuff like Fantastic Fanzine I mentioned, and CPL and some other things like that. I've actually never held a copy of Fantastic Fanzine. Really? Yeah. Oh, you're missing out. There are so many good people in that, and uh, and that is definitely, like most of the fanzines, started looking like junk uh, and just worked its way slowly into becoming really polished and nice layouts and obviously really good artwork and stuff. I think when I came along... I think the first issue I probably got was like number 10. And by that time, Gary Growth had, had grown old enough and had enough experience that he knew more of what he was doing. Right. So it was a really good-looking fanzine and had like a Steranko cover. So um, anyway, let me think. Uh, yeah, and he had art um, by Dave Cockrum in his zines, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's funny how that all, yeah. yeah one of those guys. Yeah. Um, and the collector is huge. Another huge one for me, um, personally, those are probably two of my, my favorite continuing fanzines that I can think of. Um, I mean, more people I can see, like when I list the people that are uh, featured in the things, and you can see like people like Don Newton, who did a ton of fan work, right. went on to becoming a really good pro. John Byrne, same thing, started with like CPL and some other related zines, and um who he became. Um, let's see. Is there anything? Well, there? so what was I, I? I could ask about fanzines too. What do you think? What is it about the collector that really sparked you? Um. Well, like you say, you know, uh, it, it's an opportunity to meet people who are into the same thing as you, because there isn't necessarily anyone around you where you live who's really into it. Um, and I think the fact that you have to send through the mail and wait for things maybe adds even more to the mystique to some degree mm -hmm. uh, because it's not like these are guys just sitting around you, you know, in high school for the most part where you watch them draw and develop and, you know, throw food at them at the same time or whatever. These people are, people are remote. They're somewhere else. So they, they still retain they have some sort of mystique because you don't know them personally. Um, and, and the fanzines themselves, same same sort of thing. I mean, I had no concept myself of publishing a fanzine. These guys, all these guys, like like Matt and Steve Streeter and Gary and, and all these guys, to me, I just think it's awesome that they decided at like 14 or whatever to publish their own magazine and go through all the processes of, of getting it out there and advertising or whatever. So uh, um, it, it just blows my mind how much stuff these various guys, especially people like Matt and, and maybe Streeter and some of these guys who had so many things going on. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I mean, Ultrazine is pretty cool by itself, but uh, if I'm right now, to publish Star Slayers, for example, something that I had a hand in, um, and I think other things too. So they were definitely like little teenage publishing moguls. Yes, yeah, Star Star Slayers was like the 
was it weekly or bi-weekly the first ever bi-weekly project in comics fandom and he actually was able to put it that in in time on schedule with you guys all pitching in putting a crazy amount of work into it yeah there are a lot of people involved in that i mean i think willie had the biggest hand in mm-hmm. was this guy named uh let me look because i do have that also featured here I just, for some reason i'm blanking on the uh um the main artist who did the penciling and i think might have done the writing too and i mainly inked it and did some covers and stuff for it oh my gosh i should know this name too yeah it's sort of on the it's sort of on the tip of my tongue and i just can't remember his name um i'll probably remember it right before i click on the link or something or right before i see it um oh here uh, yeah i just clicked the star slayers number four and like this wave of nostalgia washes over me yeah, so Steve Brooks. Yeah. Yeah, there you go, Steve Brooks. Yeah. Very Stalin-esque. Mm-hmm. It really was her love story to Starlin comics. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and Bill Anderson. I, I'm looking at one and Bill Anderson is inking it before I think Bill really became even more uh, polished. But he was pretty polished as an inker back then. Yeah, these were just like 12-page comics or even less yeah they were and they were small i mean they were they were those half size uh, fanzines which i think were something like uh maybe like six inches wide by eight inches tall or something you know i guess a fold over eight and a half by that piece of paper but um yeah uh, uh but yeah, yeah there were a bunch of people involved in that which is why i think it was able to um continue and keep on schedule. I'm glad you were able to scan them all and post them out there. I wish um, I wish they were able to get back in print in some way. That's why I say it would be great to have that a tab of book about these the zines from this era. Yeah, well, I mean, when I scanned all this stuff, I scanned it in a high res and then made a, a resolution version um, for the internet. So if, if I... Because a lot of this stuff I don't have anymore. What happened was, is um, like a dummy. Um, I think I was about half up with, up to maybe number forty something of ink stains. And this guy who I'd done work with at a, one of these smaller comics companies wanted to give a gift of a bunch of fanzines to someone that he worked with or something. So he bought a bunch of zines from me that I had already covered in ink stains. So I figured, well. I mean, I've been carrying this stuff around forever, and uh, I have them all scanned, so I have what I need, so I sold a bunch of them um, then. I still have a, a fair amount, but, but a lot of those earlier ones, uh, at least early in Instain's numbering, um, I don't have anymore. But like I say, I have good scans of, of everything. Yeah, this is the stuff I hate to get rid of. I actually had all the no every issue of No Sex scanned at one point, and I can't find where I saved it to. Put it to some <laughs> defunct cloud drive or something. It's been making me yeah, crazy. Probably, uh, oh, I think I was talking about Wowie Kazowie just then. That was another one of these. Um, oh yeah. That went on for a couple issues. It had some really polished, comparatively polished stuff. Um, 
Beyond the Clock, which I think used to be a, a Batmania, and Butch Geist was in that. Okay. He became a professional. Um, Wonderful World of Comics is another one that I only have an issue or two of, but it's really good. I wish I had more. I went to a visit one time. Uh, Jim Vadabig. I don't know. I never know how to pronounce it. Right. Vadabig. Yeah. Long. Vadabig yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Vadabig anyway, Connor or whatever. Yeah. I went to visit. Yeah, I went to visit him at his house, and uh, if I had. If I had less control over my morality, I would have stolen so much from that house because <laughs> he had, he has so much, I mean, artwork all over the walls, tons of books, tons of magazines, tons of comics, and a lot of fanzine. In the, uh, I think, loaning one issue of this wonderful world of comics that I didn't happen to have. <laughs> but uh, I keep asking him the you know, decide what he wants to sell his fanzine collection for because he has a really, really great uh, collection that I could, that I would really love to have in general and, and for this stupid column that I do. Yeah, I'd love to pick up a few of those myself. I should send you a few things I've got also because um, I still have a lot. Yeah, there's a couple guys that have helped me out like that, like Herb Warren and uh, who else? Um, well, uh, Aaron Kaplan, um, a couple guys that have uh, either sold me a few, given me a few, uh, loaned me some to scan. So every once in a while I'll end up with stuff that I don't have. I mean, I still have a big box of fanzines that I have not done, but it's getting to the point now where uh, there there's not as much that I'm as interested in scanning or... Uh, it seems like it's more work than it's worth for fanzines like um, Space and Time, which has been around for a long time and had a lot of really good artists and writers in it, but it's like 75 or 80% text. Mm -hmm. So I I don't have as much uh, get up and go when it comes to scanning something like that. And they're, they're pretty thick fanzines too. Um, and I did work in a bunch of them, but even even with my stuff in it, I don't have as much initiative to scan those things. Uh, but there's so much out there that I never had, or that I uh, might have had and lost a long time ago that I would love to, to do. Yeah, and it's I mean, a, it's a chore, though, right? Yeah, After a while. You know, I would I would love to do that. I used to have tons of issues of that, but it got to the point where we moved around so much. And, and and those were like one of the things that you would think no one would really care about because it's just a newspaper, you know. But now, I wish I still had those. They'd be a bitch to scan, but they'd probably be worth it. You you need the, the extra size scanner, but uh, it's all lost. That's the thing, you know. Writing these histories, um, having actual physical copies of the magazines that were published at the time was like extremely invaluable so like one of the things i had to write about for the 1990s book was about um how sales were at the time i don't want recollections of how sales were i want the actual reports from the time um and like i was able to pick up a giant stack of comics retailer magazine for almost nothing um because who would want it but for me it was 
yeah. But, but for me, it's treasure. <laughs> yeah, because you want the information. You don't necessarily want uh, uh, the artwork as much. Yeah. Maybe, or or maybe you want that, but you also want something. Yeah. I found a copy of AFTA number two at a comic shop in Vancouver, BC. And that was one of like my most amazing discoveries. This was maybe six or eight years ago. And it was just in some cheapo magazine bin. And like my eyes almost popped up because like that zine was so legendary back in the day. Yeah, I uh, I did some work in for AFTA. I did a cover for an issue and I did a bunch of interior illustrations and those were kind of fun for me to do because they weren't necessarily comic characters they were like Devo and uh, various bands and stuff because he was really into music too like I was so yeah that's pretty much what I did for for him and that magazine's amazing because it's a time capsule because it's all about pop culture from that time Uh, like it's yeah. yeah there's music and movies and other stuff and it's like it just captures this whole era in, a, in a, this very cool way. Yeah, he was, um, Bill Dale was something else. I only, uh, I think I might have talked on the phone a couple of times to him, but I don't have the memory of it. I just have the knowledge that I think I did. Um, it was mainly through the mail, but he was he was definitely a character. And um, another guy that went way too soon. Yeah, because, um, yeah, we he died, geez, about 15 years ago. And yeah. at the time, we were still doing that UltraZine 2000 site, which was like the reunion site for the old, for the UltraZine alumni. I think right. you were, I think you were part of that. And we ran the, yeah, yeah. we ran that piece by, oh, what's her name? Elaine... Chaput or something, who went to school with Billy, as she called him, and she the, the stories she told about him were wonderful. Like he was just this total prankster. He just was he he would fly from idea to idea and just play games and have fun and just like never uh, really worry about things. He just was was this guy who was just endlessly just creative and goofy. Yeah, and, and I didn't think he cared. Uh that much about what someone thought of what he you know he didn't need approval by any means from what i remember he just he's just gonna do whatever the hell he wants to do and if someone doesn't like it then too freaking bad right right and i the, the one of the big memories i have the earliest issues of ultrazine there were all these debates about afta i was like what is this thing <laughs> And I guess part of it's like it was published by a college student. So, oh my God, someone who's actually older than us is doing this stuff. What? Yeah, and there wasn't really much um, that was about uh, comics, but then also all this other stuff. Almost all the fanzines, you know, it's like the, most of them were as specific as they could be, not as wide ranging as they can be. It's either, okay, just Edgar Rice Burroughs, just Robert and Howard. Just comics, or mainly just fantasy, science, science, like no sex is basically just science fiction, um, but there weren't really many at all that would have all of these subjects in them. Right. And so that made it just like so different and so cool in its own way. It was just like, 
he was just in the whole world. You could almost imagine it turning into a slick magazine if he had had the time and energy to stay with it. Yeah, and that's one that um, I don't think I've done an issue of AFTA yet, even the one with, with my cover on it. Think so because it's sort of like, in its own way, it's sort of like space and time. It's just so much text, right? And uh, comparatively uh, fewer visuals. But um, if I can pull out that, I think it's after four, if I remember, that I did the cover for. Maybe, maybe I can do that one because uh, it, it needs to be done. <laughs> Yeah, I could send you the one I have to just um Oh there it is. The Legend of Bill Dale Marcinko. I ended up publishing it on my website on Comics Bulletin. Uh, yeah, and that kind of stuff I gotta remember. In fact I gotta remember to do a more thorough search for things like that. So when I do a column I can you know, say and I do this to some of you already, but so I can say, if you wanna learn more about this, go here, you know. Well, I've kept you for an hour. Um, this has been fun yeah. talking about this stuff, though. I mean, it, also, it almost, almost doesn't seem like I've covered enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because, like, you start looking through these zines, and, like, part of it's, like, this nostalgia. You look at this art by... Well, part of it's, like, this lost great work. Like, I'm on a page now with art by Ken Barr. Uh, oh, yeah. This was... amazingly detailed um, uh, John Carter illustration. Uh, well, it must have taken yeah. him hours and hours to put together. Maybe he got paid $5 for it. Um, but the level of craftsmanship is amazing. And it looks like a, now, a Steranko sketch. Uh, with that, with that, what's, what's the particular zine or whatever you're looking at that that's in? That's from The Collector. Oh, right, right. Yeah, and I think Ken Barr was pretty much a working professional at that time. I think... Maybe he was doing the fanzine work either for the fun or for a little bit more exposure. I don't know, but I think he was doing work for various, like, science fiction fantasy magazines. Because he's, he's demonstrating kind of the things you think of as a professional. Like, his own inks are solid. He's using wide and thick lines, or narrow and thick lines. He's varying the, the, the space. He's got good perspective. Like, this really is, oh, yeah. if it's not professional, it's very close to professional. Yeah, because it wasn't it wasn't that far after that, and maybe it was around the same time that that uh, sort of it's not a fanzine really that one called Phase mm-hmm. that has a Ken Bar story and that and I think he did one of the covers um, and it's just full of really professional work and that's why I guess a lot of people don't think of it really as a fanzine you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, he was he was really good. Well, that's always an interesting question, too. Like, what's the difference between a fanzine and just a small press comic? I mean, they're so similar in so many ways. Um, yeah, and um, when I read uh, uh, Dana's article, or I think at that point it was Mark Burby, um, that she sent me, uh, that's one of the things he touched on, is that it's pretty subjective, a lot of these designations and and uh, a lot of opinions as to what's fancy and what isn't, or maybe like 
uh, what a crud zine is and what, what is <laughs> yeah. a little bit better beyond that, then it's not a crud zine anymore. You know, um, uh, I think, uh, I, like my, my own personal opinion is one fanzine that a lot of people listed, I, I asked a few people, like, what do you think of the five best fanzines, comic-related fanzines around? And a lot of people listed on Ego. And I have a, a, le, um, a less expansive knowledge of Alter Ego than probably a lot of these guys, because I've only seen like maybe two issues. And the ones I saw, to me, uh, looked professional enough, and the subject matter was professional enough that it seemed like less of a fanzine than a magazine. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I think Roy Thomas had been working at Marvel Comics for at least a couple of years. So it, it didn't seem like as much to a fanzine to me as a lot of other stuff well there's um, something like hot stuff which had which was oh, yeah, like right, right. semi-professional i guess because it had like work by richard corbin who to me was like yeah, definitely I that's professional one, I would say it's more of a magazine than, than a fanzine um but it sometimes it would have some of the same people that were in fanzines uh but it was probably, you know, the best fanzine artists and writers would end up in stuff like Faze or in Hot Stuff and stuff like that. I mean, that almost seems like, Hot Stuff is almost like um, Underground Plus. Yeah, that's a good way of putting same it. Same sort of subject matter, same sort of artwork, but better production and uh, maybe better distribution or something like that. Yeah, the same thing for the zines that uh, Dave Sim and... Um, and Gene Day were a part of um, those Canadian zines, um, Fantasy, yeah, yeah. Orb. Um, what was that science fiction magazine they were part of? Yeah, I sort of have I sort of have a visual image in my head of uh, I think one's called Collector's Dream or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Orb definitely that had some really good stuff in it. I think Jim Craig is a name that comes to mind. Yep. As an artist who's doing really cool looking stuff for that magazine. And, like, that's the stuff I still seek out at conventions. Because it's so rare, it's so unique, just so fun. I mean, do you, so it sounds like you collect this still somewhat. Do you, is this kind of your favorite thing to collect these days? Or do you. Are you... Well, I, when I'm at a convention, and I, and I actually, you know, I don't go to very many comic conventions anymore because I don't. I don't go as uh, an attendee usually, although I've been to a couple of the LA-based ones, um, WonderCon or whatever, various things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I go to San Diego, uh, when I'm in San Diego, you know, I hardly ever have any time to myself to get up and do anything. Right. I'm the only one at my table, <laughs> so I don't, I can't go go wander around. But I have tried to find fanzine. Uh, fanzines when I'm at conventions like that but usually they're just very hard to find because usually the people I think they're going to have them are someone who has a a little uh, booth crammed with crap um, and an awful lot of uh, uh, peripheral stuff uh, and then finding the fanzines in the middle of all that can be pretty difficult and then you got to be lucky enough to find someone who's not charging an arm and a leg for what you want um yeah because that's the other thing it's like 
I don't know what these are really worth in a way. <laughs> well, yeah, it's just it, it, something like that that it's hard to attach real value to are the things that are probably most subject to either totally inflating the cost or finding it for a dime. Hardly, you know, not much in between. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, the people that are charging an arm and a leg are the ones that are hooked into the internet and maybe are speculating somewhat and then you might be lucky enough to find someone who, you know, obviously the big dream of any comic collector, whether it's fanzine or comics, is to find some old lady who, who's son was a shut-in um, and maybe died a while back and has a collection of mint comics dating back to 1941 or something um, that she, she just wants to get rid of, so she'll pay you to take them. So. Yeah, you know, honestly, in a way, I, I'm happier just to have these amazing scans, you know, to be able to see George Perez art from 1974. That looks totally yeah. crude, like you barely recognize it as him. Um, I don't. I I kind of don't need the physical. I mean, I love it, but just being able to see it still, it's a, just a service to offer to people. I'm so glad you ended up doing this column and then stayed with it for yeah. so long. Yeah, it's funny because it, it has been a long time. It doesn't really seem that long, maybe because it's so constant, um, but also only once a month now, so it doesn't seem like that difficult. But uh, my whole idea from the beginning was to scan the whole issue of everything so people could see everything um uh, and i used to scan it at a high enough rate that people could print it themselves but then it, it just seemed number one more work number two possibly too much possibility of a, a copyright problem um and number three just irrelevant because most people are going to be looking at it on their computer screen but it's so nice to see him and see this prehistoric John Bernard and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's just, like, such a pleasure. Yeah, he's one of those guys that I've really loved before he became professional from, like, CPL, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the, the best zines that I know of, and that's mainly because of the personnel, because they had a really good batch of people um, uh they were constant. I mean, I don't have super early issues, but I've seen, I think I someone lent me a copy of like maybe number six or something. The one, when I came into CPL, it was already up to maybe number 10. And I think it only went to maybe 11 or 12. Right, because all those guys went professional. Yeah, yeah. Um, or it became that uh, Charlton Bullseye. Charlton Bullseye, yeah. I think of those together all the time. Yeah, yeah, there was a, I mean, it's just, there's a, you could talk, you know, it's like, we could talk for like five or six hours covering <laughs> all these various artists and writers and fanzines, and anybody listening would probably either fall asleep or just say, Jesus, I don't know what to do, because this is too much, too much information that I either already know and don't care enough about to hear again, or have no clue about. So there's no point of reference for them to really get involved. Um, it's a small audience, of course, that it really into this stuff. But it's important to kind of preserve this memory too. And oh yeah, you know, important. so so you know, this may be one of the less popular episodes, but I just <laughs> I just think it's important. 
I think it's, yeah, this is stuff that people worked on that was meaningful to them and incredibly creative. And it kind of fills a hole in, in comics history, too. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a definite historical significance of it because of all the people that developed it and went on to careers. And then, as you say, there's there's the uh, just the, the human significance of the people who just worked on it because it was just fun and maybe never went further than, than fanzines. But it was, like, really uh, important part of their life at that time. I know it was important to mine, even though I was just you know, very inexperienced and very unprofessional and, um, you know, more enthusiastic than anything else. Well, I think we were all in that same boat at the time. Well, so, okay, so here's a good way to wrap this up then, Ken. Since you mentioned earlier, sometimes people make a list of, like, the top ten fanzines. What are, like, the top three, five zines that you're just most proud of kind of resurrecting and scanning and getting up there in your column? Huh. Uh, well, um, I think it would coincide to a large degree with which of my favorite fanzines to begin with. Um, and The Collector is way up there, um, partially because of all the people that were involved and partially because it survived for so long. I think there were uh, 28 issues or something like that, if I remember. Um, so that's one that, that I'm really happy to for people to see as much of them as possible. And I've, I've done a, about at least half the run of that fanzine. Um, and then... Uh, I'm really I'm I'm starting to do more RBCCs. Um, part I didn't do as many when I started the column because my hazy memory was placing them as more of an ad zine with not a lot of content. But I had forgotten that by the time Jim Van Heist took over, and because uh, he took over, a lot of great editorial stuff was added. So the the ad really ended up taking up maybe 20% of, of the thing by the time I was reading them. So, um, and it's also, I think, a fanzine that a lot of people maybe wouldn't search for to see, maybe because they have the same memory of it, just being ads. Um, so I, I want to do uh, a lot more of those. I think I've only done maybe five or six so far, and there's probably another 20 that would be from that period, you know, when Mike Zeck was doing a lot of covers and um, our Kemple and all these guys that were mm-hmm. doing some really good stuff. Um, and then just as important would be the, the stuff like that Matt did. Um, uh, all his Ultrazine, Omni-Man, uh, the Rick McCollum, all that stuff sort of is, is, is in one group. Um, and that's the kind of thing that is really the epitome of these young artists and writers creating their own characters and writing stories and actually doing, you know, uh, continuity work. Uh, 
whether they went on to become professionals or not, they were, you know, trying to be as good as possible. Um, and there was a lot of content between all those guys that, that, that would have faded out of existence even more because maybe there weren't as many future professionals involved. Yeah. That's a good call out. I like all three of your choices. I mean, there's so many more. I mean, well, you know, I have like, uh, how many have I done it is, but 126 so far, uh, a lot of repeats, but there's still probably 15 other fanzines that I could cite that were really important to me. <clears throat> but then there's so many more that I just either never saw or don't have anymore that, that I want to get up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's stuff that, yeah, if, literally, if it's not posted, it may as well not even exist as far as yeah, anyone was, is concerned. so hard to find some of this stuff. Uh, and I'm sure, I mean, there are probably a ton of fanzines out there that you, you just probably won't find. <laughs> the, <laughs> because it's just so few produced and so few were kept. Yeah. And I think part of it, too, is just browsing through these and having discoveries. Like, for me, you've mentioned RBCC. Um, go, discovering that Don, Don Rosa had a column for many years, Information Center, and he had, yeah. like, cartoons that he drew as part of the column, including, like, tons of Doug cartoons, where he's, yeah. he's drawing in his best bark style to, to resurrect the ducks. And it's, like... It's wonderful because you can see the passion, but also like you really see his personality coming through. Um, and when I met him, he was almost exactly like I had imagined him from his work on RBCC. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I wish that I, <clears throat> I mean, I've only met in person probably four or five of these people. Um, and there are probably another 30 that that I either really liked, saw very often in the, in the fanzines, um, and maybe talked to through the mail or something, but never met in person. And of course, some people you're never going to meet in person anymore because they're dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sadly. Well, we're all, none of us are getting any younger. <laughs> yeah, so I, yeah, I'm really glad. When I started this column, uh, there was a guy named... Uh, Andy Ligel, I think is how you might say his last name, and he was the, the main guy at Comic Attack, and I can't remember why he got a hold of me, or if I got a hold of him, or what, um, but I was going to do the column uh, weekly, and I knew right away, not too long after that, there's no way I can do this, um, and I just decided to do it once a month, uh, and and then it changed. I think it sort of the uh, the website sort of changed hands, and uh, Andy's off doing other stuff now. Uh, but um, it seems like it's not going anywhere. Hopefully for a while. And so now all I have to worry about is writing this article for for uh, tomorrow's and not coming off like an idiot. So just have to wish me luck when it comes to that. I'm sure you won't. Like I mentioned, if you want someone to read it over, happy to be one of your reading I'll crew. I'll send it to several people. Yeah, I will definitely do that. Oh, thanks for uh, taking the time. This was a lot of fun. 
Good. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I'm... Oh, thank you.